Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Um, thank you for tuning in for the reading uh, for Christina Reed's debut book, The Black Kids. Um, I'm just going to read a little bio for Brandy and Christina, and then I'll let them take it away. Brandy Colbert is the award-winning author of Little and Lion and Finding Yvonne and the forthcoming book, The Revolution of Bertie Randolph. She is on the faculty of Hamline University's MFA program in writing for children and lives in Los Angeles. Christina Hammonds Reed holds an MFA from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. A native of the Los Angeles area, her work has previously appeared in the Santa Monica Review and One Teen Story. The Black Kids is her first novel. I'll let y'all take it away. Christina. <laughs> I'm so excited. I was so excited. So I was like obsessed with your book when I first saw the announcement. Um, I think it was like last year, uh, whenever that went public. And I was like, I need this book in my life. And then thankfully, your editor sent me a copy early. So I got to get an early read. And it was even better than I could have imagined. Um, so I'm super happy uh, to be here to talk to you about it today. Um, so I know that you're going to do a little reading. Um, do you want to give like maybe a quick pitch about the book and then um, sure. do a little bit of reading and then we'll get to our conversation? That sounds good to me. All so right. um, the book is about Ashley Bennett, who is a privileged Black teenager growing up in Los Angeles in 1992. Uh, prior to this moment, she and her friends have kind of just been doing their teenage thing. They're spending more time at the beach than in school. They've got their teenage drama, but she's been very removed from the concerns of the larger community and specifically the Black community until the LA riots happen. And we find Ashley and her family and her friends all kind of sucked into the vortex of the riot and, and Ashley really struggling with who she is um, and who she wants to be moving forward after the riots. So. I'm going to read from chapter five, which is right as the riots begin. She is with her nanny, Lucia, um, and it's right as we're seeing the beating of Reginald Denny on the screen. Okay. <laughs> Lucia and I stand in line at Western Union behind a balding Russian man with really long ear hair, like my old piano teacher. Save for the television in the corner, it's quiet, eerily so. And I try to keep my feet perfectly still so my sneakers won't squeak on the linoleum. Sometimes when I have to pee really badly or when I can't make a sound, I pretend that I'm a runaway slave and I have to be very still or else I'll be discovered. It's fucked up, but it works. 
Usually, this place is a swirl of tongues and transactions, like waiting at the airport, but without any of the excitement of actually going somewhere. There's always some baby fussing while someone screams, get down from there at some kid, which sounds pretty much the same in any language. Today, it's just me, Lucia, and the bald man. Together, we watch as the crowd pulls a white man from his truck and begins to beat the shit out of him. His long blonde hair swings from side to side as he staggers disoriented with each blow. In a different world, he'd be a lead guitarist rocking out, not a broken construction worker tumbling. A man flashes gang signs at the helicopters hovering above. They're not even 10 miles away, but it might as well be a whole different country. They're my fancy school and my fancy neighborhood. And then there's this. The television flickers in fragments across the Russian's head as he shakes it. He turns to look at me angrily. See, he says. Lucia places her body between the two of us. No hablar con él, she says. The man returns to the screen. Lucia speaks to me in Spanish when she doesn't want white people to easily understand what we're talking about. She taught me when I was younger, and then as soon as we had a chance to study languages in school, I chose Spanish. And anyway, it's LA. If you even half pay attention to the city around you, you'll learn it by osmosis. It's not like it's a secret language, but it's easier for her and easy enough for me. I'm sure to everyone looking at us, we're an odd pair, a lanky black teenager and a tiny Guatemalan always together. Lucia's favorite cashier is Jose. If he's working, everything goes smoothly and they joke and laugh in Spanish about how he's going to marry her. When she's done, she kisses her fingertips and places them on the envelope before sliding it across the counter, where Jose converts it into a textbook for Umberto, guitar lessons for Roberto. Today, Jose isn't in a joking mood. El mundo en que vivimos, Jose sighs. His eyes are fixed on the television screen where the news shows images of a man slamming a slab of concrete down on the truck driver's head. See, si, Lucia says. Jose's hair is the dark of an oil slick at night. He's younger than Lucia and Mexican, not Guatemalan. He lives with his cousin and abuelita in a small house in Highland Park with three bedrooms and a bathroom. And if you climb up on his roof, you can see the city on a clear day. He sounded like a real estate agent when he told this to Lucia. I'm going to own my own business, he said last week, a declaration of intent. Doing what, she said. He wants to own one of those places downtown where they sell Cobia San Marcos and clothing and keychains and Coca-Cola and glass bottles. The San Marcos blankets are super plush and have different designs on them, like cute kittens and majestic lions and strawberry shortcake and the Dodgers. A few weeks ago, Lucia took me downtown and had me pick one out. The air downtown is always the color of a nasty loogie, but I like the buildings because they've got character, which is also why I love the blankets. The one I chose had a white tiger on it, lounging like a queen. You'll take it with you when you go to college, Lucia said, and it was like she was preparing both of us for goodbye. I wish I could take you with me to college, I joked, and we laughed. But then I felt kind of bad because it made it seem like Lucia was my personal servant. When I was younger and had a nightmare, I would walk downstairs to Lucia's room and crawl into bed with her, and she would tell me stories about her boys and her country and the handsome but very bad man double she divorced before she ran to the United States. He did unforgivable things, she said, for what he thought were the right reasons. She used to think so too until she didn't. And so he became the villain in my bedtime stories. Tell me about Arturo who lives in the house by the bridge, I'd say. Jose is not like Arturo, I say to Lucia. Jose is a good man. What's a good man, Lucia sighs. They're all good until they're not. But I see the way she looks at Jose, like maybe she'd like to sell Cobias and clothing and knickknacks and Coke and glass bottles with him. Like maybe she could sit up on his roof, cuddle up in a blanket and watch the fireworks over Dodger Stadium. I can see her dreaming up their life together and deciding maybe they could be good. I wonder if she's going to tell him today that she's leaving soon. 
Although I try not to watch, my gaze finds its way back to the television screen. The truck driver lies on the ground in a halo of his own blood and hair. Nobody goes to help him. The police are nowhere to be found. Some man walks up, takes the wallet right from the truck driver's pocket and runs off. Finally, the truck driver gets to his knees and another man comes up almost out of nowhere and appears to kick him in the head. I feel myself wince. Go out with me, Jose says. It's the first time he said it for real and not just as a joke. On the television, the man drags himself into his truck and tries to drive away. The people at the intersection continue to throw anger at passing cars. From up above, it looks like somewhere I've driven through a thousand times, but also somewhere I've never been. I bet my dad would know where it is. Okay, Lucia says softly to Jose. And I look over at her because she's going home to Guatemala, and what's even the point of going on a date when you're going to leave? But maybe that bloody truck driver made her forget, or maybe he reminded her while she left. Or maybe being around Jose makes her think she might want to stick around a little bit longer. Jose completes the rest of the transaction in silence. On our way home, as we cross the street, Lucia reaches for my hand like she used to when I was little. And even though I haven't done so in a long time, I hold it. By the time we get home, the city is burning. The buildings are stripped bare and people yank the guts through their skeletons. Lucia hands me a small envelope. The cats have said it was accidentally delivered to them. They kept forgetting to bring it over. You open it, I say. My heart feels like it's going to fall out right on my chest and splat on the kitchen floor. It's your future, Miha. The envelope says my future's been waitlisted. I want to cry. I'm in at other schools, really good schools even, but Stanford is a school I want. Close to home, but far enough away to be some other me. Somewhere I can briefly stop being a sister and a daughter, but only an hour's flight away in case Joe needs me. I don't know for what exactly. Maybe in case her broken brain delivers a rough uppercut, and she needs me to pull her up, squirt some water in her mouth, ice her bruises, and tell her to keep fighting. I need to be somewhere I can still feel the ocean, my ocean, in my hair and skin. I'm convinced Stanford is the only place I'll thrive. I want to throw up. I want to disappear. I want to crawl into a hole with embarrassment. I feel all of these things and burn up in their atmosphere as I hurtle down. Lucia pats me on the thigh. Everything will work out all right. Instead of crying, I watch. Up goes a shoe store. Up goes a laundromat. Up goes a TV repair store. Up goes a mattress store. Up goes a liquor store. All of it goes. Up. My mother calls me from her car phone. It's going to be a while. I'm going to try to take the 101 to the 405 and see if that's better. I'm afraid to get on the 10. My father calls me from his car phone. I'm okay. I'll get there when I get there. It's bad. Really bad. Stay home, okay? Promise me you won't try to go out with your friends. Not tonight. I promise. I call Joe from our living room. The phone rings and rings, and I'm afraid she's not there, but she is. Are you okay? I ask. Of course I'm not. It's so wrong. I'm so tired of this shit. They had the goddamn evidence right in front of their faces. It was right there, Ashley. I mean, they don't fucking see us even when they're looking right at us. Usually when Joe goes on about one of her causes, it feels so far away. Like she's angry because she knows she should be, and not because she actually feels that shit in her kidney. But this, this feels different. Even I feel it somewhere in my innards, pulsing. You should come home, I say, until everything's blown over. I'm not leaving Harrison here alone, she says. Stupid Harrison. Just because maybe he survived tetanus doesn't mean he can save her from everything else. Just bring him here with you. I'm not subjecting him to mom again after what happened at dinner. Is it him you're really concerned about or you, I say. She doesn't respond. Joe, don't do anything stupid, please. I think of her handcuffed to her high school flagpole, fighting for brown people halfway across the world. She spent her suspension calling our local congressperson. Joe's the kind of person who would accidentally find herself in the middle of somebody else's riot. 
dude, what the hell, Ash? The phone clicks, and then my sister's gone. That's the end of the chapter. <laughs> that just makes me want to reread the book again, um, which I'll be doing when my finished copy gets here. Um, okay, so I have a lot of questions for you, and we'll get to as many of them as we can before we take some audience Q&A. Okay, so, um, all right, you know, 2020 is, not to start this off negatively, but 2020 <laughs> is objectively a trash year. Yes. <laughs> Garbage fire of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone can agree with that. But I think it's been like an amazing year for fiction. Mm -hmm. um, so I had, or just books in general, really. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a book uh, that, you know, is pretty politically themed um, come out this year. And everyone has just talked about like how timely it is. Um, you know, partly because of the uprising and the widespread protest against police brutality, which is something that's kind of covered in my book. Um, and I've seen early readers of your book say the same thing, like it's so timely, um, even though the book was obviously written before anyone knew what this year would look like. Um, and so I'm curious, why did you decide to set the book in 1992? Um, was there anything that sparked the idea to, you know, uh, revisit this time in history? I think it's multifold. So I wanted to write a coming of age story against the backdrop of like a huge moment of racial reckoning. And I initially thought of the idea back in 2010-ish. Um, I was thinking of it as maybe a thesis film for when I was in grad school um, at USC. So that was kind of where the germ of the idea took place. And then it just felt like over the years it grew more imperative and more relevant to what was going on culturally around us, like between 2010 and, and 2016, when the short story version of the book was published, we had the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, we had smartphones taking over. So all of a sudden now, this technology is in people's hands. But if you go back to 1992, that's really the first time that we get um, a civilian capturing police brutality on a single individual in that way, and it's then broadcast into our homes. So it, it just felt like there were so many echoes, um, so many echoes that were relevant to our present. And also just, we don't generally hear from the perspective of black middle and upper middle class kids. Like how did they deal with these moments of racial reckoning? Like so much fiction um, deals with the struggle and de deals with inner city youth or kids in the South or kids in these very segregated communities. But for those of us who grow up in more integrated communities, there's still this like huge reckoning that takes place whenever we have these big moments of um, national and international racial reckoning. So I wanted to create a character who is kind of like a fish out of water in her own pond. So she is of her community. Like she, she's not the outsider coming in and being like, oh, this is crazy. Like she very much feels like this is kind of where she belongs, but as a black woman, she's then like, okay, but what does it mean for me to be part of this community? And what does it mean for me to be part of the black community as it continues on? Um, so all of that felt important. And it also felt important to show how far we've come, but also how far we really haven't come since 1992. Like it's, it's holding a mirror up to the present and also like examining the present and why haven't we come further? Yeah, definitely. I like watched all of these. Uh, there's like so many, I'm sure you watched them too, documentaries about um, the LA uprising. And it, <laughs> it's wild. I watched those last year and it was really strange where I'm like, I can't believe how long ago that was. And it still right. feels like 
pretty current, <laughs> sadly. Um, yeah. 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 Um, but I loved that perspective because like you said, um, as someone who writes also about sort of middle class um, to upper middle class, wealthy black girls, um, you know, I don't think there's enough that we see in fiction. And so I was really, especially like so happy to not only see another portrayal, but that also she lives in LA um, and that she's, you know, having to, like you said, like deal with this sort of reckoning, like not only like, thinking about, you know, like Rodney King and the abuse that he suffered and then um, how the black community reacted to that, but like how she feels specifically living mm -hmm. as a wealthy black girl um, surrounded by white people to, yeah. like generally. Um, so in the book, you know, Ashley struggles with that identity um, as, you know, the only black girl among her wealthy white friends, um, but she also feels left out from the black kids um, mm -hmm. at her school, which is a small group. Um, and this may be, I don't really want to give any spoilers, but I think for anyone who's even read sort of the, the jacket <laughs> the copy, they, yeah, it may be why she spreads a rumor about one of the other black kids um, in relation to the looting that was taking place in LA during that time. Um, so I would love it if you could talk a little bit about how Ashley feels torn between um, those two worlds. Um, you know, you really explored the class differences um, among the black community in LA. And then um, also just, you know, if you could talk a little bit about how that leads her to make, you know, this assumptions. <laughs> yeah, it seems yeah. like kind of a throwaway statement, but like ultimately ends up being this huge thing. Yeah. So I think like a lot of people think of us as a monolith, right? And we're so not that. And even within LA, if you grow up in South LA, your experience is going to be very different than if you grow up in Bel Air or if you grow up in Covina or if you grow up in any of the outlying suburbs, like your experience of blackness is very different. And especially in 1992, a lot of the portrayals that you're seeing were stereotyped. So if you assume that what you're seeing on screen is what blackness looks like, and that's not what you know blackness to look like, I think you feel a little um, like you are not part of that community. You're not feeling like you are part of whatever it is that you see if your only representations of black identity are rooted in struggle or rooted in sort of like drug dealing thugs, blah, 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 like, which unfortunately a lot of it has been, or it's like the Cosby show, which is so like divorced from <laughs> the reality too, right? Like, it's just like too extreme. So you don't really see um, yourself in any of those images. And for Ashley, I think because she's grown up privileged, because she's grown up in a space where she hasn't been around a lot of black people, she feels very disconnected from that community. And it's not that her parents haven't tried. It's just the nature of what it is um, when you grow up in certain spaces, especially black, back then, black then. <laughs> back, back then, I think it was even more so because we didn't have the internet to connect us in that same way. Um, and, and television was a little bit more, uh, it feels like television was more polarized or it was more comedic in terms of the representation of blackness. Um, and you don't really have that many portrayals of middle-class black America. So Ashley is growing up with that. And so she doesn't feel like she's part of the blackness because she's internalized a lot of that racism um, that she's seen in other sources and other media. Um, she doesn't feel like their struggles are her struggles. And she's grown up with these other girls where she feels like, okay, these are my friends. We live in the same area. We go to the same school. We've been with each other since kindergarten. Um, and I think that's why she chooses what she does to LaShawn, but it's also as soon as she says her sort of offhanded remark, she's like, uh-oh, that's a problem, um, but she doesn't do anything to correct it, and 
I think a lot of her actions are internalized racism and jealousy to a certain extent. Um, because LaShawn, for those of you who haven't read, he's like the star kid at the school. He's the star basketball player. He's super smart. He's going to Stanford and actually just found out that she's been waitlisted. Um, he's kind of the golden boy who fits in easily, she thinks, whereas she struggles with where she fits in. Um, so I, I think a lot of those things factor into her decision. And I think it's, once again, when you have media portrayals or you have songs that don't necessarily speak to your experience, you feel like they're a them and not in us. And the whole book is really actually coming to see herself as part of the we all together, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I really, really wish I had had this book <laughs> when I was a teenager. Yeah, right. I know. I wish we had both had each other's books um, <laughs> as teens. But yeah, because I, I had a lot of those similar feelings growing up in a super white um, area of Southwest Missouri. I mean, it was literally like 3% Black. Like I was one of the only <laughs> Black kids at my school all the time. So I super related to all of that and, you know, had sort of that reckoning a lot later in life than Ashley yeah. did. So I just really appreciated that. Um, and the real, the honesty, I super admire that about the book. So, you know, Ashley is not always the most likable no. character. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I mean, just straight up, I'm just going to say it. As someone yeah. who also has written unlikable characters, yeah. like I, I love that. I don't want really, sometimes no, you want to read like a feel good book, right? But like, it's, I like pretty characters. Like I like characters right. with mistakes. It gives you a place to go from with them, right? Like, yeah, I, I like people who mess up a lot. <laughs> Me too, because we're all messing up, and it's kind of like yeah. the anti-hero thing. I think that you see in like television, especially um, where it's just like you know you're following this person on this journey, and you're like, oh, they're a real jerk. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. I, I want to follow them anywhere. Like I will watch five seasons of this person being a complete right. asshole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The whole golden age of TV is just unlikable white men doing things. And so I'm like, why not just have an unlikable black teenager? She's exactly. going to find her way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I, I cringed while reading so many of her thoughts and decisions, but it was so true to her character. It wasn't like she was just a jerk to be a jerk. Um, there were reasons behind it and you really flesh her out really well. Um, and she's allowed room to grow. So I'm curious if you could talk about um, both your favorite parts about writing Ashley and then what were some challenging parts about writing a character like that? Okay. So my favorite parts about writing Ashley were, I think like the issue of representation just finding a voice that isn't like one that I've seen too much of in terms of just this sort of middle, upper middle class black teenager and, and really being able to dive into what that looks like. That was um, my favorite part of writing her because I really wanted her portrayal to be honest and complex and nuanced. Um, the scary parts of writing her were, I mean, it absolutely was the fact that she's unlikable. Like I'm I don't want people to think that I'm her. <laughs> I was so not her as a kid um, that it's not autobiographical in the slightest. Um, but it, it feels like a bit of a tightrope writing a character who's unlikable because you want your readers to feel compelled to continue with her journey. Um, and you don't want them to be like, I don't like this girl. I'm not going to keep reading this book. Um, so that was kind of difficult because I'm like, I'm sure there are some people who are going to open this book and be like, wait a minute, she's not the politically active one. She's not fighting for change. Like, mm -hmm. and she's not actually is not the person who is um, holding signs and protesting right away. It's really her discovery of what does it mean to protest? What does it mean to be politically engaged? 
And it was important to me that that was the case because I think not all of us come to these things fully formed. Like a lot of us, although Gen Z, I think is actually much better about this than, than we were. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but most of us have like a, a period of needing to learn and grow and be like, okay, this is what I actually stand for. Um, and so that's really what the book it is. It isn't her like going right into the riots and protesting or standing up and saying this is wrong in front of a camera. Like it really is about her personal journey. Um, and that's both what made it really fun and also really challenging. Yeah, definitely. I I love her. <laughs> um, I will follow Ashley anywhere. Um, but one thing I love, so even though a lot of it is about, um, you know, sort of her uh, experience growing up in a white, sorry, there's like sun that I did not anticipate coming in <laughs> through the side. Okay. Um, one thing I really love um, about her is like that, even though it's about a lot about like her sort of uh, relationship to her blackness um, versus like, you know, her white friends in this way she's grown up. Like she still has these really complex relationships with her mom, um, her older sister and her cousin who are all black. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about um, what you were exploring there with those uh, female uh, relationships in particular? Yeah, so I think we have like a lot of times we have portrayals of mothers and daughters and sisterhoods, it's kind of reductive. It's either like, you really, really love your mom, you really, really love your sister, or you can't stand your sister, you can't stand your mother. And like a lot of fiction is kind of, maybe not so much adult fiction, um, but like a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies, it's, it's polar opposites as opposed to like that middle ground where most of us, um, well, many of us, I think, are when it comes to how we interact with our, uh, our families. And especially when there's any sort of generational divide, which then is, complicated by issues around race like it doesn't all come back to race but there is definitely a difference in how older black people may have engaged um, with society at large or how they may have presented themselves because they had to not because they were in any way less brave than younger people but just that there is really the burden of representation and the burdens of having grown up in the civil rights era or before um, so with Ashley's parents, they've come of age in this having to work obviously twice as hard to get half as much and having to present themselves as perfect and really not having any wiggle room to be uh, anything less than. And so when Ashley and Joe are messier, for them, it's like it reflects on them and their failings. And they're like, but you're a reflection of our family when you're out in the world. And Ashley's sister, Joe is very much rejecting that. She's like, no, I'm me. I want to stand for what's right. I want to be out loud. I want to live out loud and sort of do whatever it is I need to do. And she's also struggling with her sort of mental health issues. So to me, it was important to examine sisterhood and motherhood and daughterhood and how it's all so complicated um, around issues of race, around issues of class. For example, for those of you who haven't read it, Joe is living in kind of a shabby apartment with her husband and neither of them are doing particularly well. Um, and she's dropped out of college. And her parents, of course, because they've built such a life for their kids, are like, why are you doing this? You've you've just thrown away everything we've worked for. And for those of you who are watching who come from Black families, like, you know, that there's oftentimes, or just people of color in general, there's a lot of sacrifice to get to a certain place, especially with all the things that people have had to struggle against. So for them, it feels like a repudiation and a rejection of everything they've worked so hard for. Um, and I just really wanted to explore the complicated relationships and 
nature of these things when you compound all of that with race on top of all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, it was such a great job. The characterization is just top-notch. I love it. I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's my praise coming from you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I always like I would like love to or my favorite movies actually are like movies where people are just drinking coffee and crying like the like, I really watch any movie where it's just like people sitting around being sad like talking about their things um, so I love any book so like every French movie. film right yeah I know I'm like behind on my French like <laughs> cinema I need to get some recommendations for you for sure <laughs> um so I know that uh, just from like our DMs and emails that we're both super into like history and research um, for our books. Um, and I watched a video just yesterday where you said that you read Anna Devere Smith's um, Twilight, which I've just bought last week. Oh, um, you and I are sort of like twins in a weird way. We've never met, but we've got all these like weird coincidences. Though. So I just bought that last week, super excited about it. Um, so that was part of your research, but um, what other research did you do? I mean, you are like a native to the LA area, but you know, how did you really dig into that time period? So I think it was multifold. One, I was here then, although I was only eight. So I drew to a certain extent on my lack of understanding of it as an eight-year-old and put it into Ashley as a character in a much more mature way. Um, but when I was eight, I was watching it like, what is going on? I do not understand. There are people who look like me. They're hurting. They're angry. And I just, I, I didn't understand what I was looking at. So mm -hmm. Ashley, to a much um, greater extent or lesser extent, one of the two, either way, she's looking at it through teenage eyes and has a slightly more complex understanding of, of the situation, but is similarly removed and like, what is happening? How do I fit into this? Um, and then in terms of research, I did, so I read Anna Devere Smith's, I read this book by, there's actually this really great compendium by the LA Times of articles leading up to and including the LA riots and like the immediate aftermath called I think it's called Understanding the Riots. I have it somewhere in mm -hmm. the other room. Um, but it's really great in terms of just seeing the coverage as it's building and building towards this moment and how the community was really dealing with uh, Latasha Harlan's death and also policing up until that point, just how um, you really feel the unequal policing and what's said by Daryl Gates over like the decade leading up to the riots. And so I think a lot of times the riots are shown as just this like bam moment, but there's really just like, it's, it's, it's a buildup that happens. It's, it's a slow and steady build. And um, whenever I told people I was writing it too, they would always be like, I have a story. So I remember trying to get back to wherever from here. And it, that was kind of like the cool thing about living here and writing about Los Angeles. So many people have their own stories that they remember, um, in terms of like, I was trying to get back home to Manhattan Beach from downtown, or I had to board up my brother's business because they were all out of wood at Home Depot. And I stole some of those details, right? <laughs> you you want to like use the character details and like the small details. Um, but it was a lot of that, a lot of YouTube. YouTube actually has so many like reporter videos so you can see how it was being covered. You can mm -hmm. see how people were responding. It has just like random footage that other people took as things were happening. So I, I, I like took a deep dive into YouTube um, and a lot of internet articles. Um, but YouTube was interesting on, on a side note because 
when our protests in 2020 started, a lot of the narrative was the same as it was back then in terms of how they were trying to focus on the looting and focus on um, the destruction as opposed to the people who were protesting. And obviously there was a difference in terms of how those two things looked, but it was very interesting seeing how the media narrative was initially trying to play from the same playbook until they realized it wasn't quite working in 2020. Yeah, right. I know it's really interesting, like thinking about like it feels so long ago, but like it's still not really that long ago and how much has changed and how much hasn't. Yeah, but I feel like now people, because there's Twitter and there's, you know, Instagram or whatever, and there's like all kinds of social media technology, like people can be like, no, that's actually not how it happened. Yeah, exactly. You're able to push back against the media's portrayal of things or like inform how they move forward with that portrayal, right? Yeah, definitely, which is a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to move into some questions about craft. Um, so you went to USC film school, right? Mm -hmm. I did a okay. lot at USC. I did undergrad at USC and grad school at USC. <laughs> it, it was, I did, I did creative writing and political science for undergrad. And then oh, wow. I took a little time off and then came back for film school. So all of that, I think, contributes to the writing of this. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, that's so interesting. I didn't know that you were actually a creative writing major. I I was a journalism major. I didn't know you could actually study creative writing when I was in <laughs> college. I'm like, I don't know why, it was like the late 90s, but I just didn't know. Um, but so, okay, I didn't know that, that but I'm really curious about uh, film school, especially like how that mm -hmm. informs your storytelling as a writer. Um, what are kind of some of the differences or the overlap? I'm really yeah. curious about that. So it's funny because film, film writing is very structured. Film writing, there's, if, if you're doing traditional filmic structure, there's an act one, there's an act two, an act three, and you have an inciting incident that people think should happen around page 10. And you should have like, I mean, there's like very specific markers of how um, a movie, a mainstream movie is supposed to um, play out. And as somebody who was doing screenwriting uh, on a regular basis before deciding to take a step back and write this book, it was helpful to have that structure um, just to know how to kind of put the pieces at play and then eventually blow them up. So uh, like as long, it, I think it's for drafting, it's really good to like get a draft down and you're like, okay, I have a beginning, middle, end, like this happens here, this is where we end here. Um, just that aspect of it was really helpful. And I think also, I tend to think very visually when I'm writing because of that as well. Like there's a lot of, um, like, yes, I love language, but also there's a lot of visual storytelling in my head as I'm doing it because of having that background as well. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's kind of it. Because with creative writing, it's kind of like, uh, write about a character for 20 pages. It's okay if nothing happens. Um, and, and film school for me was really honing um, how to keep the plot moving in ways that I maybe didn't have <laughs> before that. Well, maybe some people would argue that now, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was definitely like how to build a plot and how to build character and how to build conflict in these very concrete ways that you can then completely get rid of if you need to, but at least you have that foundation. 
Mm-hmm. And wait, I just, I forgot about this too. Um, but isn't there a movie in the works? Yes, they're working on it. They're they're pitching mm-hmm. it now. I'm not attached to write, but Winuri, okay. who is the director of Rafiki, and she's amazing and super smart. She's attached to direct, and Allison Davis is attached to write. So, oh, awesome. Okay, I wasn't sure if you were writing a screenplay because I'm like, well, you know how to write. I'm sure you've written <laughs> screenplays, but yeah, okay. no, not this one, which is it, it, it's it's good just because I need a break. <laughs> I want to move yeah. on to the next thing. I think sometimes as creators, we're like, okay, that's done. Let me move on to the next thing now. Oh, totally. Like once my book comes out, I'm like, I don't, who wrote that? You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. It feels like a different era. Um, okay. So you briefly mentioned this before, but the Black Kids, the novel was expanded uh, from a short story that mm-hmm. was originally published um, back in 2016, I think. Uh, so I love short stories. I've written a few, but I don't, I don't know. I still, I think it's such a particular skill set. And I'm just like, I, I don't know really how to do this. Um, so can you tell me how to write a short story? No, what were some of, <laughs> what were some of, for you, like some of the major differences uh, between composing like a shorter work versus like a full length novel? Ooh, okay. So I, because I had done creative writing as a undergrad, as an undergrad, um, short stories were kind of my safe space. So after dealing with Hollywood and the film industry and just feeling like at the time I wasn't, at the time I didn't feel as empowered to tell the kind of stories I wanted to tell. And I think there's been a huge shift since then. Um, I felt, okay, let me just take a step back and like write a short story. And I think I wrote like eight short stories that were just sort of practicing and practicing and practicing, getting back into the space of creative writing. Um, And so short stories felt like an E, I don't want to say easy, but it it felt like, um, it felt like a safe space to tell a story for me. And I knew how to do that. And then going into writing a novel was like, I don't know what I'm like, how do you, how do you do 80,000, a hundred thousand words? Like I'm, just gonna pull this out of my butt somehow, like I don't know. <laughs> and and that's where I actually leaned on the screenwriting training. Cause I think having had that like break it down and outlining um, made it so it was a little less, um, a little less intimidating to just get started. Cause I'm like, okay, well if I at least kind of know whereabouts certain things should happen, I can write to that end. Um, but a lot of the fiction I love doesn't tell a story in a straightforward manner. Like a lot of the fiction I really enjoy is like all over the place. You're just like, here's a character thoughts for a whole chapter, or here's the history of this country for half a chapter. Um, so I kind of wanted to play with form in that way too, uh, in ways that you wouldn't with a short story where like I can go off and talk about Lucia's experiences in Guatemala and how it relates to Ashley in ways that like maybe um, a more straightforward narrative wouldn't work. So I don't know. I feel like I'm getting lost in my own answer, but basically it was, it was different. It was challenging, but it was also something I'd wanted to do forever. So I like put it out into the universe and I'm like, okay, if I just tell people I'm writing a book, I can't embarrass myself. So I have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> And it worked. <laughs> My pride made it so I didn't quit on myself, even when I really, really wanted to. <laughs> oh, well, you did a great job. Um, do you think like short story collection from you anytime? 
soon in the future? Maybe. I do enjoy the form. I, I feel like short stories are like films, right? Like short stories are films and novels are like TV shows. So like with a novel, you really get to sit with the character for chapters and chapters and or episodes and episodes. And with short stories, you're like, here's a story in 90 minutes and we're done. So I, I do like what you can do with both. Um, but for the next challenge, I think a novel and then maybe we'll go revisit short stories. We'll see. Yeah, that's so funny. I think in the same like video that I watched of you, I heard you say that too. And I was like, wow, I've never thought of it like that. But I am like such a TV junkie. Like just since <laughs> I was a kid, like, you know, when TV, like when you were saying sort of like the golden age sort of ushered in and everyone's watching TV now and like every, you know, film actor is now doing TV and like people are just like, wow, television. And I'm like, you know what? Like I watched television when it was bad. Like I don't, I don't want to hear about yeah, like, I had like, through hours of bad TV to get to this point. <laughs> Exactly. Like I have been like a devoted TV junkie my whole life. So I don't want to hear about people who just started watching TV in 2010. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> right? But that it really is a really good analogy. I like it because I like, I love being, I do love short stories, but like I have to be in the right mood and I want to sit down and pretty much read a whole collection yeah. sort of. Um, if I read a short story, you know, I want more. It's like, I need that next hit or whatever but like with, I, I sorry inappropriate, no, but, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, with tv and, and novels it just feels like I want to be on this journey for as long as possible so and then you yeah. get sad when it ends you're like it's three in the morning I haven't slept and yet it's done and I'm sad <laughs> yeah ex exactly yes yes <laughs> Uh, well, I definitely want to get to some of the audience. Oh, good. We've got a lot of audience questions. Okay. Um, I see you in the questions. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to start with the first one that was up here. This is coming from Pam. And Pam says, I remember the horrible Rodney King beating from the TV and news coverage. How much do you think has changed or not changed from 1992 to today? And are you hopeful? I feel it's kind of a mixed bag of a question, right? Because I feel like a lot has changed and also not a lot has changed. The fact that we are having conversations around unequal policing in this way is the change, right? Like it's it's not that there have been more, it's that we're actually able to see them. It's on our screens, like we are able to now as a broader community and not just people affected by it, see the reality that like, this is what happens. And, and black people have been saying that's what happens for generations, but it, it is now in 2020 because of technology and because of just how many incidences you cannot say, oh, well that kid was at the wrong place at the wrong time, or oh, that person was doing the wrong thing. Like there is a, there's a plethora of, of videos now that just show that this is what happens when somebody who looks a certain way gets stopped by police um, or just happens to be on the wrong side of a police encounter. So I think the fact that we're talking about it now and that we have a multiracial, multigenerational, multinational coalition of people saying enough is enough and demanding change that's the difference between now and 1992. Uh, in 1992, mm -hmm. it still felt like it was part of, it felt like it was, yes, there were allies from other races, but it did feel like it was like a black issue. It felt like it was, and, and also because the riots took place in the black community. And so mm -hmm. if you were not, um, if you weren't part of certain communities, 
yes, you saw it, but you didn't quite have to engage in the same way as 2020, where we are seeing protests everywhere. And, and you can't really just turn a blind eye to it in the way that you could if you maybe were in like a super wealthy community before because it didn't really impact you and people weren't really protesting. Like now everyone is on it. Um, and I think also younger people are driving the change in major ways too. Uh, you have a group of people who millennials and Gen Z have grown up with multicultural friends. Like it, for the most part, they, they've grown up seeing uh, different kinds of people on a regular basis, even when it's like down to watching the Disney Channel or something, right? Like it's, it. I, I think there's um, a humanizing effect of being able to say, hey, that's my friend, as opposed to that is an other that is happening with uh, younger people. And, and that's part of the shift as well. So I hope things change. I think we're all a little fearful that things are going to go back to normal and people's timelines are going back to normal and people are like, okay, this is tiring. What are we going to do? But I, I purposefully ended the book on a hopeful note because as frustrating as it can be to impact change, we still do change, right? Like, you still take those few steps forward and maybe you take a step or two back, but you have to keep fighting for those few steps forward. So that's kind of where I am now. I'm like, I hope we're in our few steps forward. And and I, I think also, honestly, part of what we're seeing now um, in terms of certain things is the step backwards, right? Like we, we've seen the step backwards that was a response to Obama's election and people feeling like, okay, maybe we're losing some degree of power. Um, I, I Think that that's kind of maybe where we actually are now is in the step back so i'm hoping for the steps forward that happen and that we're all kind of waking up or those of us who weren't awake are waking up yeah totally that's a great answer <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i'm gonna steal that next time someone asks me <laughs> just recording that um Kim says, I would love to hear Joe, who is Ashley's sister, older sister. Um, I would love to hear Joe's story. Do you plan to write about her? You know, you're like not the first person who said that. So many people are like, I want a Joe spinoff. I want to see Joe. And like, I am horrible in terms of just being a masochist and reading reviews. And so, <laughs> same, same. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible. It's so not healthy. Even if no. they're mostly good, you find the one bad one and you're just like, oh, I should never write again. Yeah. Um, but I think Joe is interesting in that I really wanted to use her character to deal with mental health in the Black community and how it's oftentimes not been something that we talk about. And 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 especially, I think, if you do have some degree of privilege, it's like, well, what are you upset about? Like, what do you have to be upset about? Um, so I love Joe as a character. Maybe at some point we explore Joe. <laughs> um, but I also think that characters like Joe are more out there, like characters who are more vocal and characters who are at uh, at the foreground of the movement. Um, but what happens to Joe, we don't see as much when it comes to black women. So Joe's trajectory is something that I think leaves a lot to be explored. So maybe, maybe. Oh. I, I do love her as a character. <laughs> <laughs> well, I vote for more Joe. <laughs> more Joe, Joe the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, this is 
relating back to our discussion about TV. So Teresa wants to know what TV shows have you have you been watching during lock teen slash lockdown slash I just made a new lock teen slash quarantine. Okay. Lockdown slash quarantine. What are you watching? I am a TV junkie as well. And um I've been watching I May Destroy You. I think it's incredible. I think oh it's God. so ballsy. I love that show. I love her. I will watch anything she ever writes. Um, it's incredible. So that's my favorite of the summer. I've been watching Rami, and I think that's another show where you're just like, um, I I think that's that's a really good one. I just watched The Babysitter's Club for like nostalgia so factor, and I'm just like, I love it. These are like, they're the best and and I loved the babysitter's club growing up so it, it took a lot for me to be like I love this cast I love that cast um what else have I been watching a lot of HBO I just watched mm -hmm. the Michael Jordan doc as well the we're watching was, all the same stuff together what else have I been watching uh, those are the ones off the top of my head. I, I just think that we have such a wealth of storytelling and I love that we have characters who are like blowing open what people expect stories about certain people to look like. So the fact that, that Rami is an Egyptian American Muslim kid who's just struggling and he's like Ashley, like he is a very flawed character on that show, super flawed. Um, but I love that that is something that we have out there now and I may destroy you and what it deals, how it deals with sexual assault and agency and um, PTSD is so brave, like super duper brave. And yeah, I just, I'm, I'm so excited for all these shows that are doing such great work and great storytelling. And I think the more stories we have out there, the better, right? Like give me all your stories. I want to hear all the stories in the world that are, not being told up until this moment. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, um, you know, for anyone who is lucky enough to not be, you know, super affected by the pandemic and is able to, you know, kind of stay in as much as they want, just kind of wind down with TV and stuff. I'm like, what are you complaining about? <laughs> like, we have so much <laughs> great entertainment right now. I mean, it's, it's none of it's ideal. And, you know, but for someone who doesn't have to worry or struggle as much of just like, just turn on your TV. Like, there's so much amazing stuff that it's like Netflix, Hulu, Showtime, yeah. like whatever you're into, there's something for you out there. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I just started I may destroy you this weekend and I'm like so good. I, I'm just blown away. I yes. can hardly deal with how good it is. Um yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna move on. Um oh I like this question from Kim. She says, Christina, I know you say the book isn't autobiographical. But how much of you would you say is in Ashley, if any? And how much of you is in Joe? Oh, so that's a rough one. I would say I'm more Joe than Ashley in, in a lot of ways. Like I think Joe is is much more me overall. Um, but Ashley's struggles are very much the struggles I had in terms of trying to navigate non-Black spaces as a young person and how I identify and really trying to find my way within my own blackness and the black community. And so I grew up 
not quite as privileged as Ashley, but definitely middle, upper middle class. I went to private schools. I did all kinds of like gymnastics, horseback riding lessons, ice skating lessons, blah, 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 blah. So I had a lot of advantages in terms of how my childhood um, differed from a lot of black people because of systemic and institutional racism. And that's, that's just the reality of how economically black people have been impacted by policies. So I personally got used to being the token and it was like a joke, like, oh, you're an Oreo or you're not quite black or you're not really black. And like, that's up until somewhat recently that people felt it was okay to say certain things to you. Like, this is really not that long ago. 1992 could also be 2013, if I'm to be perfectly honest, even later than that, in terms of how some people um, spoke. And, and, and you're always in that sort of navigating space of like, I don't want to offend this person who is theoretically my friend or my coworker, or my acquaintance. Um, so that part of Ashley is very true to me, um, her struggles in that way. But in terms of what she does, nah, I was like a super nerdy, sweet kid. I was like on speech and debate. I didn't date anybody in high school because I was just that nerdy. Um, I, I, I volunteered at hospitals and nursing homes. So that, so that part of Ashley was not quite me her whole like popular girl cheerleader thing wasn't me I'm a I'm a little closer to Joe in that way I think <laughs> oh I love that you volunteered in high school. <laughs> oh, I, I, okay so like I went to I don't know if anybody in here is familiar with Troy but Troy is actually in Orange County and it's a magnet school and they have this thing called international baccalaureate slash tech which is basically just like AP on steroids and you have to do like a thesis for high school and and it's insane. It's it's absolutely insane. So I decided to do that. That was not healthy. Um, but volunteering was part of, of what we had to do as part of the program. So I did that. But then I also just really enjoyed it. So I kept doing it. So yeah. yeah. You were yeah. a sweet kid. I was, <laughs> I was. I was not volunteering. <laughs> I was so I was more like Ashley now. I feel like trash. Um <laughs> I was not volunteering at all. I was out partying and on the dance team and not being a productive member of society. So but you need that. I feel like you need that time to like be a kid because I feel like I had a delayed childhood. Like I didn't actually do like the crazy stuff till I was in my twenties because I was so focused, like singularly focused in high school. Oh well, that's okay. As long as you got that side out. Oh, I did. Um, <laughs> A little too much. <laughs> oh my god, we will talk. Yes, later off camera. About that. Yes. Um, Shirley wants to know uh, where were you living during the 1992 uprising um, in, so, in the LA area? I was living in Hacienda Heights. So that's for those of you who, even people from LA are like, where's Hacienda Heights? It's the suburbs, it's the 626. It's very like Pasadena, Sherman Oaks, or it was at the time. Um, so that's where I grew up, but my father worked downtown and I ended up going to schools all over. So I went to school in Hacienda Heights, in Alhambra, in Fullerton, in, I'm not even remembering. And then I, once I moved here for USC, I lived on campus. I lived around campus. I lived in Koreatown. I lived in Hollywood, Silver Lake. Silver Lake. I loved Skylight when I lived there. I was there. Oh, um, I'm so happy to be doing this. So I, I think I, I I had that, like Ashley, sort of slightly outside of the heart of what was going on. Um, so yeah, I drew on that. Like I, I wasn't 
I wasn't in South LA. I wasn't even like mid city, but I was close enough to know what was going on and close enough to have parents who were impacted by it and close enough to have other people I cared about who were impacted by it. Mm -hmm. I was only eight too, so I didn't really know. Like I was just like, what is, <laughs> what, what is this? What is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's weird thinking back. Like I was, I guess I was 13 um, when this happened and you know, I was all the way across the country in Missouri, but still just, of course it was on the news and just being like, what? I don't understand. Like, what's a riot? Like, I didn't. Exactly. Like when you're that yeah. age, and especially as a black kid, you're just like, I, I know that there's something wrong. I just don't quite fully understand it and mm -hmm. don't have the tools to really understand what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I love that we have books like yours that, you know, really break it down for people who may be in areas like where I was growing up where I didn't even know people still protested in the 90s. I thought it stopped. You're like, oh, okay. I know. My mom told me that people were like protesting, um, you know, after George Floyd, like in my hometown. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, like people are downtown. I was like, oh, this is incredible. So I'm glad that people have books like yours that they lived in an area that was very sheltered, like where I came from. <laughs> All right, <laughs> we've got one more question here from the audience. And this is from Rochelle who says, do you have advice for younger or new writers, especially those writing um, young adult contemporary books? Ooh, okay. So that's, I think I have a multifold answer to that. I think the first thing is, if you are a younger writer, don't feel like you need to have gone to certain programs. Don't feel like you need to have certain degrees. Because I know that when I was younger, I was like, oh, I just need to apply to this fellowship and then I'll do it. And then I would be too scared to apply to whatever that fellowship was. Um, or, oh, I need to have this background. And I was afraid that like I had the film school background, but I didn't have the creative writing background. So maybe I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I think to that extent, don't feel like you need to have anybody else's validation to write or feel like you need to have a program's validation to write. Like all of us have so much that's worth sharing. And if you write, you're a writer. Like don't feel like you need anybody else to validate that. Um, and oftentimes those programs don't really serve people of color in a lot of ways. Like they, they I think maybe they're getting better, but, but oftentimes still there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of um, schools that really uplift uh, voices of color in a meaningful way. So don't feel like you need to be in any one of those. And also, if you are younger, like if you're in college, I would suggest majoring in something other than just writing. Like make sure you have another major because if you have something else you're passionate about, that'll find your it'll find its way into your writing in really interesting ways. So like poli sci was my second major, and I I think most people <laughs> who read the book will see the ways in which like that is um, in the writing and, and how um, just a knowledge of what's going on politically, internationally, or locally, or in general, um, finds its way into the work. So that's one answer. <laughs> the other answer is just do it. Like, I know it kind of relates to what I just said. Um, a lot of people get sort of held back by the idea of that, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I need to read these books. Maybe I need to do this. So one of the best pieces of writing advice I got was from this jerk I met on a train who was, he wrote a book. It hadn't been published. And I'm like, how did you do that? And he's like, I just did it. Um, and at the time, <laughs> I was like, you're an asshole. But he's, he's absolutely right. Like, you, all you got to do is do it and, and have that confidence and that cockiness to be like, 
I have something worth saying. So just do it. <laughs> yeah. And be okay if you don't always, if you're not as productive certain times. So like in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of us have not been as productive as they could have been. Me too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Be kind with yourself. And especially if you are having a hard time or if you have any mental issues, it's okay to take time away to take care of yourself and then get back to it. And don't beat yourself up for not being able to write at that moment or a month even or two months, whatever the case may be. Just it's all time to ruminate, right? It'll, it'll be okay. Yeah, I hate that advice where it's like, I, I still see this and I'm just like, what is going on when people are like, you know, and you have to write every day, you're not a writer. Oh. You know, I'm like, the, okay, I guess I'm not a writer then. <laughs> no. Yeah. So there'll be weeks I don't write or like I'll write something in my iPhone at three o'clock in the morning where I'm like, I should get on that eventually. Um, mm -hmm. But it, growing older for me has been learning to take care of myself. And I wish I had had that knowledge as a baby writer, like it's okay to not be mm -hmm. okay. And then to put your writing down and go back to it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> well, I guess those are all of our questions. Wow. That hour flew by. I know. <laughs> Thank you both. I know. <laughs> it's a great conversation. Um, do you all have any final words? Everybody buy the Black Kids and read it and talk about it as much as possible. Buy the voting booth too. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. We're, we're going to get both of us in there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, with that, everyone wants to message by in the comments um, thank you so much for joining all of us i appreciate yeah. you guys happy hour <laughs> <laughs>